Our text of emphasis today is found in the book of Acts, chapter 11, and we're looking at verse 1. And it says there this, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. And the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered into the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered that the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Oh God, as we're thoughtful about the community of faith that is Advent Hope, we pray for understanding from the church in Beta and help us to learn what we can be here in this community today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you may know, if you've been around here for a while, we've been journeying through this winter that will never end that... Uh, We've been journeying through the book of Acts, the story of the Beta Church, the church before it, 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 it went widespread. And we've been trying to pick up some insights about uh, what it's like to do church or what it was like to do church in the first century and how that might relate to our experience here as we want to be a community of faith that is, uh, that is, is faithful to the, to the ethos of that newborn baby Christian a church. And so it's, it's kind of shocking to read the narrative of chapter 11. Shocking because it is so uh, direct. The beta church, that church that we look for insight and understanding about how to exist, they had problems. 
In fact, we read here that they had an existential crisis of uh, prejudice and discrimination. Uh, we're told that the good news about Jesus went to some people that were not part of the original group. Narrative, uh, the narrative of Acts 11 believes saying that uh, believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now you would anticipate that this would be really exciting news and good news to them. But we, we read that when Peter got back, who was the one who was responsible for sharing this uh, good news to the Gentiles, that the, the church didn't ask him, hey, how did it go? This is so exciting. Their first, their first question was, what were you doing going into the house of an uncircumcised man and his family? Because you see, if you were Jewish, you did not uh, do this. You did not go into the house of a of a Gentile, and you certainly didn't eat with them. Have you ever had really, really good news that you shared with a friend, and the friend found that one thing to be negative about? Uh, this, this was the experience of, of Peter. He had uh, great news. He had done uh, a, a great work. He had even come to a new understanding himself, but when he gets to back to his, his, his brothers, his compatriots, they have nothing but negative questions about the experience. And so we see that the newborn church, the beta church, had issues when it came to prejudice and discrimination. Now this issue of, uh, of circumcision was actually kind of a big deal. And you can read more about it specifically in Acts chapter 15 where the newborn church, the beta church, wrestles with the issue. But basically, it was a question of whether people had to identify themselves as being Jewish before they identified themselves as being followers of Jesus. So those from the, the circumcision camp said, absolutely. Like, you can't really be a follower of Jesus unless you identify yourself, first of all, as being a Jewish, because that is of utmost in importance. And so this experience of Peter was a, uh, a contrast to that. Here are people who were not circumcised. They didn't have the, the, the symbol of, of, of affirming Judaism, and yet uh, Peter had went and spoken uh, to, to them. And so when the church heard this, they were, they were concerned, because they were made up of, of Jewish believers who had accepted this message about Jesus. And so we see discrimination and prejudice almost from day one. Uh, the actions of Peter, as uh, prompted by God as described here in Acts 11, implied that indeed a person could identify themselves as a follower of Jesus without identifying themselves as being Jewish, and this was a radical notion. It was a radical notion to Peter himself, who had to go through this experience on the top of a roof where God, in, in very weird fashion, reveals to him, hey, this, this message is for everyone. It's not just for those who identify themselves as a Jewish. And then, I don't know, I get the kind of the sense that uh, the, the end of this passage is almost begrudging, where the church is like, hey, who knew? Even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So it's almost a, a begrudging acknowledgement that God is, is, 
is, is bigger and, and, and more broad than they could possibly imagine. So this church that we're looking for insight and understanding to, this newborn, this beta church, had issues. Uh, now, despite this revelation of inclusiveness that we read in Acts chapter 11, uh, it's no secret that the church today in 2017 still struggles with the issue of prejudice and discrimination. This has not gone away. We've been for, for over 2,000 years trying to figure this out. We still haven't figured it out. 2,000 years still wrestling with prejudice and discrimination. And so we have to ask ourselves as a community of faith that wants to be faithful to God's calling, well, what's the deal? What holds us back as a church or as a, uh, a community or as a culture at lar large from being in inclusive? Why is this problem of discrimination and prejudice still sticking around? Now, it's a complex issue uh, that needs more time than we have today. And as President Obama once said about something else, it's, it's also above my pay grade to deal with this issue in, in too much uh, detail because I'm not a sociologist, but we can go to the sociologist and get some ideas. What's going on? Why does prejudice and discrimination, whether it's in the church or culture at large, stick around for so long? Why haven't we overcome this as, as human beings? Um, and so in uh, researching for today and looking at those sociologists, there are a number of responses, but I've chosen uh, three that I think might be helpful for us. Why, why does prejudice and discrimination continue to stick around even in the community of faith? Well, sociologists tell us that uh, people, individuals or people groups, hold the perception that they need to maintain their social status. Social status is a big deal when it comes to prejudice and discrimination, uh, apparently. And realistically, we probably all are very aware of this. If, if your social status is, is threatened or you feel like it's uh, threatened, and certainly if you are of the, the prominent uh, group that holds social status, uh, feelings of prejudice and discrimination pretty quickly will most likely uh, follow. If, if you're, you, the power that you hold over culture, if the power that you hold over politics or uh, governing is endangered, prejudice and discrimination soon follow. And so this perception that uh, would mean the loss of, of power or influence leads to some pretty uh, frightening things or can lead to some pretty frightening uh, reactions from those who are in, in, in power, those who want to keep and maintain their social status. But it's not just those who want to maintain social status that fall into the trap of, of, of acting in, in ways of discrimination. For those who want to elevate their, their status, also the issue of prejudice and discrimination. Because if you want to, 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 to gain and you recognize that there are other groups or other people who are in competition with you, then it's likely that you're going to act in a, a, a way of discrimination against them because it's a, it's, a, it's a world where we're in competition with each other. So social status and competition over social status leads to the perpetuation of discrimination and a prejudice. If you feel like you may need to maintain or elevate your social uh, status, 
that can very easily lead to discrimination and prejudice. All right, secondly, uh, people feel that there are a lack of material uh, resources for which they need to compete, and so economic competition is a reason that prejudice and discrimination continue to flourish. When it's perceived that there are a limited amount of resources that your tribe, whatever that tribe might need, uh, might be, needs, the, the desire to protect your hold on those resources can be very strong. When jobs seem like they're at, at stake, when, when food or lodging seems like it, it's at stake, when land is, is at stake, these material things are at stake, it's, it's very easy to get in a protectionistic uh, a mode where the likelihood is you will quickly fall into uh, practices that are discriminatory. And so sociolo sociologists tell us that economic competition is a great problem when we think about the perpetuation of prejudice and discrimination. Finally, sociologists tell us that a, a, a person or a group of people who have been socialized through their family of origin or their culture of origin to believe in their superiority obviously are in danger of acting uh, with prejudice and that leads to all kinds of problems again. So if you grow up uh, being taught that you are superior to another person for whatever way, whether you're taught actively or passively, it's just assumed and you have a privilege and you're not aware of that and uh, you're socialized to be, believe that you uh, deserve that, then this leads to uh, prejudice and again, all kinds of other problems. So these are three very uh, distinct reasons that uh, are given, and of course there are many, many more. It's a very complex uh, subject. The three reasons that sociologists have suggested why discrimination and prejudice uh, continue. So what's the response? How do we respond to this as a, as, a, as a culture, as a community, as individuals? How can we overcome these, these uh, realities? And so again, there are uh, modes that are offered. So there's one theory, the self-esteem hypothesis. And that's when, that when people have an appropriate education and gain higher self-esteem, their, prejudice, their prejudices will go away. So if you just educate yourself or you become educated and, and then you, you maybe gain self-esteem and maybe you also become uh, more wealthy, that the likelihood is that your prejudice will disappear. So what do, how do you feel about that? Is, is, it, is that successful? No, that's, I mean, that's not working, right? Just becoming more educated, more successful, and having more self-esteem doesn't magically make prejudice and discrimination uh, go away. You guys with me here? Yeah. Uh, another theory is that uh, the, the theory called the contact hypothesis. Again, I didn't come up with these. Someone smarter than I on this issue. Contact hypothesis. And this is uh, states that the best answer to prejudice is to bring together members of different groups so that they can learn to appreciate their common experiences and backgrounds. That sounds so fantastic, doesn't it? But you and I know that just bringing people t together 
to live in shared spaces has not worked to make Disneyland, it's a small world, right? I mean, I mean New York is the great experiment of this, right? Bringing people together and, and we bring people together and everybody lives in peace and, and harmony. How's that working? I mean, okay, you know, there, there, there's, this is not a bad idea. Come together, learn from each other, but this hasn't solved that existential issue of prejudice and discrimination. Uh, third theory is the cooperation hypothesis, another good one. It holds that conflicting groups need to cooperate by laying aside their individual interests and learning to work together for shared goals. It sounds so great, but in practice, very difficult, right? A fourth theory is the legal hypothesis. And this is that uh, prejudice can be eliminated by enforcing laws against discriminative behavior. A great idea, fantastic, but hasn't solved the problem, right? You guys with me here? Am I boring you? Okay. So what's the ultimate uh, solution? As we think about uh, uh, ourselves being a, 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 a diverse uh, group of people, we want to be a faithful community that's, uh, that's growing together. How, how, how do we uh, overcome this, this, again, what has been an existential issue for Christianity since almost day one of prejudice and discrimination? How do we overcome as a community this, this issue? Is it through the self-esteem hypothesis? Is it through the contact hypothesis? Is it through the cooperation hypothesis or the legal hypothesis? Hey, we should use all of those if necessary. But I would suggest to you this isn't going to solve the problem because these have been around for a long time. And yet discrimination and prejudice continues. And so we go back to Acts chapter 11 and Peter's uh, narrative in verse 17. And he says this. I went to these people's home, this man's home, and I started sharing about what God has done on humanity's behalf. And then God's Spirit showed up. In fact, the Spirit showed up in exactly the same way he did when he came on the apostles in the upper room. And in verse 17, Peter says, So if God gave the same gift he gave to us, to those who believed in that room, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? In other words, God was up to something in this group of people that I had prejudice against. I wouldn't even go to their house normally. I certainly wouldn't eat with them normally. But I was impressed to go, and I went, and God did something unexpected. Who was I to get in God's way? And then the story says that when the others heard this, they had no further objection and praised God, saying, even if it was begrudging, so then, even to the Gentiles, who would have thought God has granted repentance that leads to life? The implication here is that when God starts working in a circumstance, in a situation, and when the gospel is revealed, then true transformational change can take place in a person's life or in the life of a community. God can, can, can transform a community. 
God can transform an individual. And when he gets involved, strange things happen. People who don't usually uh, uh, talk with each other are, are, are open to talking with each other and dialoguing with, with, with each other. And, and, and they're empowered to experience transformation and change. The gospel is designed, is designed to break down barriers of prejudice and discrimination. We said that sociologists say that people or people groups hold, when they hold the perception that they need to maintain their social status, prejudice and discrimination are perpetuated. What we read in Romans chapter 3 and verse 22, this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile anymore. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the, the law. Is God just the God of the Jews only? No, God is the God of the Gentiles too. He's the God of everyone. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. The implication here is that we're all in the same boat as humans. That we don't need to, to, to be concerned about our social status, about our power, political governing power, cultural power, that we're all in the same boat. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we don't have to hold on to our a social status. We all have a new status in the gospel. The God who's done something for us has done something for everyone, not just us. Everyone who believes is equal. This is an empowering message. Sociologists say that, as we said before, that people feel that they're, when they feel that there's a lack of resources for which they need to complete, and this economic competition kicks in, that this perpetuates discrimination and prejudice. And yet we read in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God loved the whole world. And he gave his one and only son for everybody. That whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the entire world. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. This is, this is a, a, a message of, 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 of not scarcity, of abundance, that God has is, is, is got plenty for everyone. And so we don't have to be worried about economics of things. Oh, oh I got I to gotta get in because there's a limited uh, uh, amount of tickets. This isn't the, you know, the, the, the Broadway show. This isn't Hamilton. Thank God it's not Hamilton. <laughs> Has anybody been to Hamilton yet? I know, I know Hannah went. You went all the way to Chicago for Hamilton, right? I mean, that's what you got. Hannah had to get on a plane because she couldn't get in. In New York, she had to go to Chicago to see Hamilton. Thank God it's not Hamilton. There's not a scarcity of tickets to get in. It's for everybody. So we don't have to, we don't have to worry. We're going to be like, ah, i got to hold on to what I've got because there's not enough. There's enough. There's enough. 
God loved the whole world. There's enough. We don't have to be afraid that we're not going to make it. See, the gospel is good news and has an impact for, for everything. We said that the sociologists tell us that when a person or a group of people have been socialized through their family of origin or their culture of origin to believe in their superiority, that this perpetuates prejudice and discrimination. But then we read in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor their male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to his promise. If you come from a family where you were socialized to believe in your superiority, there's good news. The gospel says that's all wiped away. You have a new family. It's the family of, of God. And that family, you, you, you have a new origin. The one who, who, who has no beginning and n no end. We are all children through faith. If you've been socialized to believe about yourself in one way, the transforming power of the gospel is that you have a new identity. There's no limit to what God can do through the power of the gospel, his work on our behalf. We read this really profound scene found in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7. And it's John, who's an old man, and he's seeing what the church will be like when Jesus returns. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 7, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation, rescue from our, our, our desperate situation on planet Earth. Rescue belongs to God. Our rescue is not uh, rooted in our, 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 our superiority or in our social status, or, in our, or our ability to hold on to the, to the things that we feel like we need. We're, we're not limited by economics. Salvation belongs to God. This is a transforming message. According to the gospel, God loves the world. You have value because you are a human being and God loves you. And out of this love, he's acted on our behalf, on everybody's behalf, everybody in the entire world. His actions give us self-worth that can overcome the fears that we have of losing our social status or not having enough. It can transform and change our identity so that if we were socialized to believe one thing about ourselves, we can have a new life. I've said it many times before because it needs to be said, certainly in the culture that we live in in, in uh, the Western world, 
and, and most specifically the United States of America, we don't need to be afraid as humans because God loves us. We read in Matthew chapter 6 the, 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 the comforting yet challenging words of Jesus when he says, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than them? You're human. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about these material things? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, is thrown in the fire, he'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. So why are you afraid? You know, fear is at, at, the, at the root of so much of prejudice and discrimination. As we embrace the gospel, we can be released of fear. It's a new economy. There's enough for everybody. Your social status doesn't really matter anymore. You have a new status in the gospel. And God can transform and change our identity so what we learned about the superiority of one people over the other can be transformed and changed so we can recognize that God loves everyone. Every single person who has ever been born or ever lives on planet earth, God loves them. God loves you. And this is good news. This is transforming news. A God who has worked on our behalf and so we don't have to be afraid or angry at other people. We don't have to harbor prejudice or discrimination. Because of the gospel, the church can be a community of inclusiveness. A community not afraid of diversity. A community uh, not looking to withhold power and influence with a small group of people or, uh, that are like-minded or of the same ethnicity. But rather, we can be a community that's defined by its love for each other, irrespective of ethnicity, culture, social status, or gender. In Jesus, the church can thrive diversely because there isn't need for competition, for power, or for resources, or for influence. Everyone shares everything. This is the model for the church. So we have to ask ourselves, What's going on then? Why isn't this the reality in our churches? Why isn't this the, the, the reality always for Advent hope? That's a question I'll leave you with. But I can assure you of this, as we embrace the gospel as a community and as individuals, God can do something in our experience to overcome the boundaries that we've set up, that can overcome our prejudices and our discriminations and our fears of each other and bring us together in radical love and inclusiveness, embracing each other in Jesus. May the church 
this church become a community of inclusiveness, allowing the spirit to eradicate prejudice and discrimination here among us as we embrace faith in the God of diversity, the triune God, three in one. Let's pray. Oh God, we're challenged by the, the story of that beta church. And we recognize their fears and their faults because we see it here in our community too often too. And so we pray for the healing that comes only from you. We pray that your gospel, that your good news will penetrate our thick hearts and our thick skulls and that we can become people of inclusiveness and that we can be known for our love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.